Dallas College. And I brought a meeting here some time back, and I don't remember when it was. And I heard Glenn was a little worried tonight about whether we were going to get here or not. But I was ten minutes earlier than it was last time. We got here at 8.30 the last time I came up here. I'm looking for a preamble. I don't have one. Uh, tonight I've brought, as Glenn said with me, Pat, Patty, who did in January celebrate her second anniversary. And, and at the meeting in Laurel that we had that night, I had, we had Glenn speaking and Amos, who's now down in Norfolk or Newport News. Kind of a military meeting, I guess. It was uh, either military or ex-military speaking for Pat for her anniversary. And I do remember Patty being nervous. She came to our house for dinner that night and she didn't eat very much. She's going to have to come back for an encore. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. I'm going to skip the rest and say the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And that's for anyone that's new here tonight. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous after over 20 years of, of alcoholic drinking. I consider myself a primary alcoholic, whatever that is, meaning that uh, I had trouble with booze from the very first drink. I drank it like there was never going to be any more from the first time I was turned loose with an unsupervised situation with a bottle of booze. And that was when I was about 15. And I, I somehow stumbled through life and, and, and made it. Uh, uh, I'm a member of the, uh, the United States Navy, and I've, I've been there for most of my adult life. Uh, well, all of my adult life and, and quite a bit of my adolescence. I was still an adolescent when I was 37, when I came to. But, uh, I used to worry, because I wasn't an admiral, and what they were doing to me. And when I was when I was sober about a year, it, it dawned on me that I was damn lucky that I was a chief, you know. Uh, with all the things that had happened to me and all the places I'd been and all the things I'd done, it was very fortunate that I had gotten as far as I had gotten without, uh, and, 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 and still had a whole skin. But... I, we were talking tonight on the way up here about our first impressions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the, I uh, was kind of different. I, I called a priest when I, when I had enough. And I was getting ready to go to work one afternoon after my last drunk up till tonight. And I, I just sit down in the chair and said, I can't go any further. This is it. I've had enough. And that was my last drunk up till now. And, that was the tailing off, rather. I had just slept for about 24 hours. Uh, uh, part of that was on my front porch. Uh, the last part was in a bed. And I got up, as I said, got, trying to get ready to go to go on watch. It was in the evening, and I couldn't make it in the afternoon. And I, I, I just couldn't go. It was simple as that. And I called the priest, and he said to me, I can't help you. Uh, but if you if you've got a drinking problem, I know somebody who can, and I would advise you to go turn yourself into the hospital, and and I'll send the man to see you tomorrow or the next day. So I was willing to do that. Uh, at that point, uh, that was as good a way to any as any to get out of going to work, and I was sure as hell wasn't able to do that. So I went to the hospital, and I turned myself in, and they they put me in the in the in the nut ward in the psychiatric ward in the naval hospital in Yokosuka, Japan. 
because that's what they do. Oh, they still do that with us. Come think of it. Uh, that's where I work now. It's in the psychiatric ward. But uh, I got there, and the, the second day I was there, the chief psychiatrist uh, interviewed me. And his only comment was, uh, my first wife died in alcoholic, and I couldn't help her. And I don't know what in the hell we're going to do with you. Now, there's a priest that couldn't help me, and the, and, and the chief head shrinker couldn't help me, according to his own their own testimony. And the next day, a guy from AA came, and he said, we've got the answer for us. And I just said, what is it? And, and, and I haven't, again, haven't found it necessary to drink since that day, since that day that, that I turned, that I asked for help. I believe tonight that I took the first three steps of this program before I ever knew that they were what they were. Uh, I, I was ready to do anything that anyone said for me to do. Now, I wasn't all that ready seven weeks later when I got out of the hospital, of course. Uh, I read all the literature and I found that these things were all applicable to me and that, that my sobriety was here in this program. But the second guy that came to call on me was a Marine, and I didn't like him. And and that almost did me in. And and for about six weeks after I got out of the hospital, this Marine kept trying to push me around, tell me what to do, and I wasn't about to listen to him, you know. And and I did, but I did listen to the program, and it, and and it did work. I fortunately met another another man who I chose to be my sponsor, who who I could identify with and and could listen to with with ease. Uh, a short time later. And otherwise, I probably wouldn't have made it because I was still stubborn and egotistical and, and full of bitterness and resentment. And uh, it took this other man, uh, the man that I could identify with, to to help rid me of this these things. I can't recall up until tonight, for anyone that might be new here tonight, I can't recall anything in the in any of the literature, any of the big books, or any place in, in AA in the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've had any difficulty in digesting. And that has made it a, a simple task for me to stay sober, because I've been able to use the tools that have been offered by this fellowship a day at a time to avoid taking that first drink, which I know today triggers the physical addiction to alcohol that I have. And that somehow or another I had uh, from the very beginning, you know. Uh, I can't explain that, and uh, I don't know that anybody else can. A lot of people are trying today, but uh, they haven't really come up with any definitive answers. I do know that I'm not crazy, and I never was. I wasn't crazy before I started drinking, uh, and I might have been a little dingy while I was drinking. Uh, well, I wasn't a little. I was more than a little dingy while I was drinking, but it was, in my mind, uh, uh, due to the chemical action of alcohol on my mind is what was wrong with me while I was drinking. And that once the booze was removed and I found a way to, to re-enter society and the damage began to, to repair itself, uh, nature began to take care of these things. And, and with a way to live, such as AA, I am, am certainly no more uh, mentally ill or anything else than anyone else in this world today. I need reinforcement for living because of the, the damage of over 20 years of alcoholic drinking. And I read somewhere last week that that maybe alcoholics have to be a little more than normal to be able to cope once they get sober. And I, and I don't find anything to argue with in that because, because I can't afford 
the luxury of resentment. I can't afford the luxury of, of anger, like, like, for instance, my wife, who is not an alcoholic. I can't afford the luxury of self-pity for any prolonged period of time. I can't afford many of these things. I can't afford the luxury of, of relaxing after work with a little drink to, uh, to let my care slide away. I've got to do it somehow without a chemical. It's got to be some other way. I can't be like normal people or like social directors and uh, escape a little while with a couple of martinis. It's not for me. It's got, I have to do it some other way. And and I found a way in Alcoholics Anonymous. As simple as that. Uh, so I think maybe there is something to that, that. That maybe in order to stay sober, to, to cope with life as it is, Due to the damage done to me and, and to you and to us, that uh, maybe we have to become a little more than normal in order to live, in order to live sober lives, in order to stay away from the drink a day at a time. Uh, I think that's enough for me right now, and I'm going to introduce the first of our speakers tonight. We have two. Uh, the first one is Patty. Thank you, Bob. I'm Patty, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> no matter when it is that I speak, I get up here and I'm shaking, and I never have any idea what I'm going to say. I guess we begin at the beginning, and that was a long while before I took a drink. Because in my growing up, and uh, I guess as far back as I can remember, I was a pretty irresponsible sort of person and uh, hid from reality as best I could. I didn't really have my first drink until I was about 16 or 17 years old. And at the time I took it, I wasn't aware of the fact that uh, there was any change in me, although I can look back on it now and as best as I, I can remember. There was a certain uh, letting loose of what I like to think was my personality with that drink. Uh, I was able to talk a little better and be a part of things instead of apart from them because I really and truly was apart from just about everything all of my life. Uh, <clears throat> I really <clears throat> didn't have any problem with alcohol for a long time. I married at 20. A year and a half later, we had a child. My husband was in the service at the time. When he got out, we moved around with the type job that he had at that time. <clears throat> Always I was running from reality and not assuming any more responsibility than I could possibly manage. I didn't drink. If I had a drink, it was fine. If I didn't have a drink, it was fine. And it wasn't until my husband decided to go back to school and... Uh, I had to assume the responsibility I had been trying to shirk, but I was able to start losing myself in booze. We were living in Milwaukee at the time, and I started my own business. And it was a day nursery in kindergarten, and I had the capacity to take care of 12 children at a time, along with some help from people I hired. And uh, I didn't drink during the day, and I didn't drink in the morning, of course, but at first, I would just have maybe two drinks in the evening, and that would help me sleep and relax. And uh, pretty soon, it was more than two drinks. It was three or four. 
I can remember when we got ready to buy our first home up there. Uh, in fact, as my husband and I were talking about this the other night, we'd gotten a bill from a liquor store, and he didn't know anything about it. And the financing for our house was going through, and uh, he says, you realize you probably blew the fact that we are going to have be able to get a house. And I was terrified for about 10 days or two weeks until that financing came through, and I still don't know where he got the money to pay the bill. But by that time, my drinking really and truly had gotten totally out of hand. I would have to drink until I just about passed out at every night. And this went on for a long while. During this time, <clears throat> our son was in elementary school and junior high school. And he was having grave emotional problems. And he still suffers from a great many of them, even though he's 17 years old. My marriage was going downhill very rapidly. There was no communication of any kind between us. I mean, can't very well talk to somebody who's blacked out, you know. And the blackouts were becoming quite often at this point. Well, we did get the house, and we moved into it. And to supplement the income, you know, I never did anything halfway. I decided to take students in from a local university to live with us, and I would give them two meals a day. So I had the kindergarten of 12 children all day long, and I had the students. And, boy, this enabled me to really have a good excuse to drink. And so each evening, me and my bottle of bourbon in the stereo would sit very quietly in the living room with the lights very low, and I would daydream away until it was time that I should be upstairs in bed. And I'd get upstairs, and that'd be the last thing I'd know until the next morning at six. Year after year, three and a half years of that. And I don't know how my husband put up with it. I don't know how my son did. And frankly, I don't know how I ever lived through it. Physically, I was not damaged that much. Mentally, I don't know. But spiritually, it was terrible. The fears and the depression that I had and the terrible, ugly thinking that would go through my mind were perfectly horrible. As I said, I didn't have any morning drinks, and I didn't drink during the day. And those morning hangovers were rough. When I first came into AA, I was certain I had never hurt anyone. And the longer I'm in AA, the more I'm aware of the fact that every day I got up with one of those hangovers, and I was taking care of those children, and I was communicating in any way with anyone else. I was hurting people that I'll never be able to make amends to. And sometimes I wonder if this isn't really good for me to keep in mind any time that I want to slack off on my AA work. Because if I go back to it, maybe I'll be punished even more. There toward the end of my drinking, uh, I became verbally very abusive to both my husband and my son. And my husband finally, after two years of threatening, started the law proceedings on a divorce. So I really pitched the tizzy when I got the papers. And uh, this slowed me up on my drinking for all of three days. 
<laughs> so he relented and he stopped the processes. And I relented in my good works and I went back to my drinking. But it came January two years ago. And I had gone through the Christmas holidays just drinking worse than I ever had. And this one day, it was, things were very bad. And uh, the children had gotten to me, and there was about two and a half foot of snow outside. And I had a bottle of bourbon sitting on the kitchen cabinet, and I knew I was going to have a drink. Now, for several years, I had been seeing a little blurb at the bottom of a newspaper, the morning newspaper, have a drinking problem? Call AA and the switchboard number there in Milwaukee. And I never had done it, even though several people had suggested that I go to AA. But this day, I really was frantic. I thought certain I was crazy. So I called the switchboard, and the girl said, Well, if you won't take a drink, I'll have somebody come by and take you to a meeting tonight. And she said, I'll have someone call you about it. It couldn't have been more than ten minutes, but it certainly seemed like a lot longer before a lady called me. And she said the same thing. She gave me her phone number in case things got difficult for me. Well, about two hours later, I was finished fighting with that bottle, and I'd had myself a drink, and I knew I was going to drink more, and the children were still there, and I was terrified that the parents would start coming to pick them up and smell alcohol on my breath, and the whole world was collapsing around me. And so I called her back, and I explained to her what had happened. And she said, well, you'll have to give me about an hour, and then I'll be there. And she came over to the house. The reason it took her so long was that she's blind, and she had to get someone to come and drive her over to see me. The gentleman that she got is deaf, and uh, they're perfectly marvelous people and quite an inspiration to me. There's a rehabilitation hospital in Milwaukee called DePaul, and it's a privately owned and operated institution where all of the counselors and most of the nurses there are recovering or recovered alcoholics, depending on how you want to look at it. About two months before the time when I finally called AA, they had opened up one particular floor just for women. Before that, there had never been any place except the county institutions to take women alcoholics. <clears throat> and Zell, the lady that came there, made arrangements for me to go in there because I was really, I was awfully sick. And so that evening I went in and I began kind of a rebirth phase. And the difference in my thinking, just by the fact that I found that I wasn't literally crazy and I wasn't alone and I wasn't so different. And being around these people was the most beautiful experience I've ever had in my life. We had group therapy. We had AA classes. We had AA meetings in the evening. And it was pretty much AA around the clock. And it was, it was just tremendous. I can't speak highly enough of this place. My counselors were uh, just great to me. My husband and my son were kind of in a state of shock, I think, at this point. Uh, 
My husband again sued me for divorce three days before I was to leave the hospital. And my counselors handled that with me quite well. They made arrangements that I, you know, some place for me to go, a halfway house, and uh, arranged for me to get some clothes, because I had the clothes on my back, plus a half a package of cigarettes, and that was the extent of it. <coughs> they talked to Jim, and uh, he decided that he would try again. This was the day before I, the day before I was to leave the hospital. And I went home, and I was scared. I was I don't know, it was almost like I was leaving home for the first time the day that I left that hospital. But I began going to meetings right away. There, I was very fortunate in the fact that there were two groups that were about the size of this here tonight, right in the immediate area where I lived, and I was able to get to them quite easily, and I had gotten a number of phone numbers. And uh, things began getting better. I think that the closeness that I felt, the empathy, not sympathy, but the empathy that I felt among the other AA members is probably the most sustaining thing of the next few months. Because my husband hadn't had a month in the hospital and he hadn't had all of this AA and he hadn't had the therapy. And he was very bitter and he was frightened and he didn't dare trust me. And this is perfectly understandable. In fact, I have come to believe that if he hadn't done the things that he did about trying to divorce me and having this attitude, maybe I'd have never gotten bad enough to have found AA. And I like the new life I have. I like being able to get up in the morning and look out of the window and see something beside, oh, God, another day. I like liking people. I like learning. I like the opportunity of growing up instead of growing old. I like the warmth of walking into a meeting just about anywhere and having friends. About Six or seven months after I came on the program, my husband finished his master's degree and he got a job opportunity back in the D.C. area. I'm from Annapolis myself, so this just thrilled me. It's an opportunity to come home. But I was really pretty uptight about leaving my AA group, that new on the program. And when we got back into Maryland... Um, I had a number of telephone numbers, and I had a world directory, and I had made all of these preparations of going to a group right away. Well, one week slipped by, and I hadn't made any contact. And toward the end of the second week, I was the most unhappy person. It was like I'd gone back to drinking, except that I hadn't had a drink. All of the thinking and the suspicions and the angers were right there on the surface again. Well, I hadn't unpacked any of my phone numbers, and I hadn't unpacked my directory, so I went to the local police station in Laurel, Maryland, and I got the names of a couple of people in AA and where the meetings were to be held. And I went to the Laurel group at St. Philip's on a Monday night, and it was an open meeting. And boy, I walked in the door, and one gentleman, Elwood, 
Elwood F., maybe some of you know him, he just came over and shook hands with me, and then a lady came up and she shook hands with me. And all of a sudden I realized that that was what I needed. I needed to be where I belonged. I needed to be accepted exactly as I was. They already knew the worst about me. And you know, if that's the worst that ever happens to me, is to be an alcoholic and find out about it and to learn that it's the first drink that gets me. And by gum, I can live a long while in this world. And I look forward. Well, in fact, you know, even with two years, I go to at least six meetings a week. I don't have a problem with drinking now, but I, I have living problems. And this, to me, is what keeps me honest with me. And that, that's just great, to be able to be honest and say, okay, that's all right. I've done the best I could today. The story of a loser who's learning to become a winner. And it's great. Thank you. Story a couple of minutes here. Uh, Patty kind of told the, the story of my life in a, over a long period of time, as far as my drinking was concerned, the alcoholic drinking was concerned. Uh, in that, the things that happened to her seem to have happened over over a stretch of time. Uh, and 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 I can encapsulate all that into my first drunk. It's about uh, the blackouts. The blackout came on the first drunk. The uh, the the hangovers, the sickness, the the, the remorse. Uh, most of the things that happened to people over a period of time, I experienced from the very beginning. Uh, one thing that Patty said she never found was the morning drink. I found that after about the first two weeks. The morning drink was the the thing I needed. And I continued using it for about 20 years, you know. Uh, looking back uh, on on my drinking and, and, the, and the fact that uh, for most of that time I tried, I did nothing about it and tried to do nothing about it and wasn't, wasn't really interested in doing anything about it, uh, I, I'm surprised tonight that I'm here. I'm surprised that I, that I survived. Uh, but I did. You know, I have had periods of time that I cannot recall up until uh, tonight, uh, that, I, that I'm sure I'll never recall. But I've been all over the world, and I've had blackouts for days at a time in just about every place I've ever been. Uh, I, I can look back over every year prior to 1965 when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and think back over all the places I've been, and I've been almost around the world prior to that time, and I've been a considerable distance around since I've been sober, revisiting the places I had been. <laughs> but the only thing, <clears throat> looking back over that that number of years, almost 20 years, in fact, of traveling, uh, drunk, looking back over it, uh, about the only thing that, that I seem to be able to remember about any places I ever was was... Uh, uh, a kind of a hazy room, you know, a smoky bar room. If I thought of Paris, it was a, in terms of a bar room. If I thought of 
of Turkey or Istanbul, it was in terms of a bar room. If I thought of Tokyo, it was in terms of a bar room. If I thought of Indianapolis, it was in terms of a bar room or Washington, D.C. or Baltimore or wherever. Uh, I don't suppose in all the cities and all the countries I had been to, I had ever seen one monument of any kind. I had never seen a historical uh, memento of any kind prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't seen too many yet, but uh, but I may one day. But but certainly before coming to AA, before getting sober, I, I saw nothing of anywhere I was ever at, except bars. Uh, she talked about the blackouts. She talked about the, the remorse and the misery. Uh, and the one thing that I found for me about AA, and I think it's something to, that most of us can look at, is that no matter if it's a woman or a man or, or a kid, a young person talking, if they if they talk to me about how they felt and the things that happened to them uh, when they were drinking, I can identify. Now, the, the physical differences in our stories may be different, but I think what happened to us inside is not all that different, whether we be man, woman, or child, if we're alcoholic. Not all that different. I don't think there's that great difference in any of it. What I have tried to do since coming to AA, and maybe I didn't do this in the beginning, but I certainly do now. When I listen to a person talk, I listen to how they felt, not what they did. Because, you know, circumstances surrounding the drunk and the drinking are not all that different. So that's part of what makes this fellowship work, I think, is how he spoke of the empathy, the understanding we have one for the other. I think that's part of what makes this program work. Maybe it's what all, all of what makes it work. I don't know. The next speaker is uh, Art, and I'm going to ask you to come up now. Thank you, Bob. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Art, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm still uh, fairly new in the program. I'm about, let's see, I think life began for me really last May, May 1972. I say it that way because that's what I really believe tonight. Uh, it's a whole new life for me. Last May was a day sort of like tonight here, raining, and I was out in front of the Washington Hospital Center. I'd just been discharged from the alcoholic ward there. I had a piece of paper in my hand that said I had been treated for acute alcoholism, alcoholic addiction, alcoholic hallucinosis, and fatty infiltration of the liver. Down the bottom of a piece of paper, it said 400 and some odd dollars. I figured that's a pretty expensive drop. They told me that uh, to stop the diet and care of myself physically, I could take care of that liver problem. And they were right. And I knew about the alcoholism. I knew it well, even though I'd only known it for about three months. I didn't know about the hallucinosis, so I, I called the doctor later that afternoon and asked him about it. He said that I'd been chasing green spiders around my room the day I checked in. I knew about blackouts or losing track of time, but I didn't know anything about green spiders. 
So I was scared. And for the first time in my life, I really wanted to do something about it. Now, just three months prior to coming into the hospital center, I'd been in Calorama. That's a little spin drive place down, downtown in D.C. Five days, and I think it's $175 now. They can get, get it out of your system and zoom, you're on the street. I tried that and it didn't work. Then I was in the hospital center about a month later. And they drive me out and introduce me to AA. And I tried AA for six weeks for the wrong reason, not for art, but to try to get my wife and family back. And so, of course, I didn't get sober. I got a little dry in six weeks, but I didn't get sober. And I failed. Also, in that three months, I had been in the high-field jail twice. Never been in jail before in my life before. You know, couldn't figure out why I couldn't drink anymore. And it went back so far, even today, I can't really put it all together. I think it was about when I was about 15 years old. It means I drank for 25 years. I remember the kids in the neighborhood had fallen in love with something besides girls. They, they, they called it Red Ball Express, the red wine. And we could find some older boys to buy it for us. And I'd always worked after school, and I had a little money, so I could be like the big boys then and drink wine, and that's what I did. It made them sick. It never made me sick. It made me feel big. And they used to chug a lug it and try to see who could drink the most before they got sick and threw it back up and never bothered them. So I could do something, I could do something that nobody else could do. And I did that very well. I guess it was meant to be. I truly believe it took every drink I drank to get me here, to get me into AA. You see, I had fun drinking as a teenager, and then when I got out of high school, without too much difficulty, I started to work full-time, and I started in night school, tried to further my education, and I was still playing around with food. And by this time, I passed wine and beer, and I was thinking, martinis. Except we didn't call them martinis. To me, they were um, olive sandwiches and marinated olives. I never call it by the right name. It's always it's just a fun thing. And I used it. And at that point, it hadn't begun to use me. But I did notice that my drinking was kind of controlled by the amount of money I had in my pocket at any given time. You know, I'd stop and say, I'd, I'll have one. And the next thing you know, it'd be 8 or 9 o'clock, and all the money was gone. It's time to get home. I was married then. I'd been married very, very early. 18 years old. And I began to travel in my job, and it seemed to be the, the socially accepted thing to do, no matter where I went, to drink. I was in the railroad industry in, uh, in a trade association. I moved around the country a lot, to a lot of parties after uh, meetings during the day. Booze just flowed freely, and I just partook along with everybody else. It seemed like I had an unlimited capacity at that time. I thought I did, anyway. 
I've been talked to once or twice about falling down by the people I work for, and uh, I listen. And maybe I made some conscious effort then, but I never really wanted to stop. But gradually, over the years, it began to use me. I found that instead of just stopping off and having a few drinks, and then it being eight or nine o'clock before I got home, I'd be gone for a couple of days. I knew where I'd been, but I was, I'd been doing very strange things. I wanted my freedom again. And I'd been married for about 12 years. There was one child. And I wanted that freedom so badly that, uh, I took off for Nevada. Drove across, across country. I stayed out there for a while, and I was on a leave of absence from my work. And finally, I went through that routine that they have out there, and I got divorced early in the morning. I got drunk by about 12 or 1 o'clock, and I got married about 3 o'clock that afternoon. <laughs> really did. I came back east and settled down, and things seemed to get a little better. I, this was the cunning and uh, baffling part of it for me. I could always seem to work and to find a good job. I never really had any trouble other than my personal life, well, my married life. But I could always work. And the morning drink, uh, it was there, I took it. Just I felt like I wanted it. Maybe I needed to steady myself so I could do a lot of writing, or I needed to steady myself so I could talk at a, at a, at a group. And by this time I was up to vodka because nobody could tell that she drank vodka. But then it really got on me and I, and I started to hurt. And my wife suggested to me that I go and see a doctor. <clears throat> and I did. Had a complete physical. And I just found out a week ago that, let's see, this was 1964, I went to see this doctor. I just found out a week ago when I went in for another physical that he had recommended in 1964 that I go in uh, to AA because he thought I had a drinking problem. I remember seeing him way back then and several times before. And he had asked me such things as, how much do you drink? And I say, oh, a few beers. Couldn't tell the truth. Uh, truth would have been better than the lies I was telling, especially about my drinking. My wife would sit down on the edge of the bed and say, Art, when are you going to do something about your drinking? I don't need to. It's not causing me any problem. It's not uh, really hurting anybody else. But she said, well, it's running your life. I remember her saying that. I said, no, it's not. She said, well, you don't have any friends. I said, I don't need them. She said, well, you don't associate with uh, my sister or my, my brothers or my family. I said, don't need them either. And she said, why? I said, because I've got a superior mind. <laughs> she reminds me of that quite often. Anyway, this is what had happened to me over, over the years and all that thinking. And then at the very end, my body just wouldn't take any more. Uh, family wouldn't take anymore, and they left. I wouldn't work. I moved from uh, 
wouldn't work at this point. I moved from Washington to Baltimore to work for a company there, and they sent me out on the road again. And that was bad news for me. And I moved from Baltimore back to Washington in another good job. And they sent me out on the road again. They sent me to places like Puerto Rico and Hawaii. And I, I knew that I, I did work at these places because I could see the reports that had been written later. But uh, I don't remember an awful lot about them. I know what I was doing at nighttime. But when my family left and I was alone, that's when I began to stop eating and the alcohol just consumed my body. It was really good. I was crawling around like an animal. I called a preacher and he came over and he prayed for me. I didn't like the way he was praying, so I prayed for him. See, I used to be in the church did everything right. I, many years ago, was a, a, a teacher, in, a Sunday school teacher in a Baptist church. And that went on for four years. I, I'd go and teach Sunday school and then come home and drink and thought nothing of it. The preacher would see me out in the backyard. He was a neighbor, and he, he would say, Art, you seem to have a little problem with uh, all that beer you drink. And I told him, mind his own business. Eventually, he asked me to stop teaching. But this preacher that came to my house, he couldn't help me that night that I was figured I was in trouble. So I called AA. That's the number out of the book, and they sent two fellows out. Never will forget them. They were from law. Had the funniest smiles on their faces. One was named Bill L., and one was named Russell J. And they're real winners in this program. A lot of the years of sobriety, but I wasn't going to listen to them. I still only wanted my wife and family to come back home. I didn't want Art to be sober. So I let them go. They let me go. I decided the best thing to do was to move. And that would that would cure me. So I moved to Bethesda. Went to the first drying out joint. Got a little violent, got locked up, left that jailhouse about two, no, about one o'clock in the morning, and I caught a taxi cab for Laurel, where I thought my car was, and the taxi was going down the number one highway there at uh, Belleville, and I saw a liquor store was open. So I just got out of jail because I'd been drinking, you know, too much, and gotten in trouble. So I thought the right thing to do was to get a drink and get my thinking straight, and I've learned a lot. I stopped and I got a half pint and a six pack and I got to Laurel. My car was there. I made it back to Bethesda. Decided Bethesda wasn't the right place for me to live. So I moved to Virginia. Wasn't any different there. I lasted there about two weeks. So I was kind of sneaking around with, uh, with the drinking then, trying to control it. Couldn't understand why I couldn't go back the way it was before. Didn't know anything about the progressive nature of it. And, how the constant use over the years had really gotten to me. So there was some more trouble, and I was back in jail and scared. And I was in the hospital center and scared. NAA and scared. Didn't have the least bit of sobriety. Just kind of stumbled, stumbled around with my ears closed, listened to the people a little bit, maybe. And then after every meeting, get on the telephone and say, honey, guess where I've been? I've been to an AA meeting. 
Pretty soon I'm going to have six weeks, and they said that I'm going to be okay. But after this last time, on this Saturday in May last year, I went into the very next day. I went up to a little building called Help Laurel. Went upstairs. They're kind of shabby little place. Went upstairs there, and, and there were a group of folks sitting around the table. And they told me that if thinking had caused any problem in my life, maybe I ought to try to find out something about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought to myself, thinking caused me any problem. I was ready. All that trouble I'd been through. And I wanted to stop. I wanted to stop the art for the first time in my life. I really didn't know how, so I decided I would listen. And I would do exactly what they told me. I'd never done this before. I'd always been my own type of guy. I was going to do it all myself. I always said I could do anything anybody else could do. might take me a little bit longer. So it was. I never wanted to do anything. But I followed the advice that they gave me that law. And I was fortunate in that there's, um, there are meetings there, there are three groups, and there are meetings there seven days a week, and two on Sunday. And I went to those meetings, as they told me, and I listened. And I found some sponsors, I found some winners in the program. Winners, I call somebody that's had a few years anyway. One sponsor wasn't enough for me, had to have four. And I looked for the type of people that I thought I could relate to. And relate to that would be someone that had some common experience along the same lines that I had. They could help me some in my personal life. And one of my sponsors is, is an attorney. I, I kind of, I guess the alcohol was still working on me. I kind of cunningly thought that I was going to get some free legal advice too. My first session. Two sessions with him cost me a hundred dollars, and he didn't say a, say a word really about about alcoholism. But I still have him as the sponsor, and he'll talk all I want to about alcoholism without a fee. But I guess that's how it worked for me. I found found the program, I did what they told me, and I accepted the twelve step steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I say accepted. I haven't worked them all yet, never will. I accepted them at face value. I didn't try to take them apart. I didn't have any trouble with that step one. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. Every time I tried to go back to it, I got in trouble. There just wasn't going to be any more drinking for art. I knew that my life had become unmanageable. I came to, to realize that it really had been unmanageable for, for years. And everybody knew it but me. There wasn't a thing I could do about it until I stopped drinking. The second step, the insanity part, that took an, an awful lot of humility for me because remember I used to say I had a superior mind? How could I be insane? But the insanity of trying to go back and drink when I knew that I couldn't it came through to me pretty loud and clear. It'd be like putting my head down there and trying to run through that wall for me to try to take a drink again. It, it got to the point that it made me deathly ill, to the point that I had to go to a hospital. 
and I was doing crazy things at the end of my banking. So I really didn't have a lot of trouble with the second step. And in spite of my religious training as a kid and later when I, I guess, supposedly became an adult, I had no real belief in a higher power at that point. When I got around to working step three, or trying to work around it, I couldn't catch hold. I tried every way that I knew when I came in this program to do exactly what these people said. Accept the program, don't examine it, don't analyze it, utilize it, work the steps. So I couldn't get by that third step. I was still alone. That was a new experience for me. I worked during the day, but I had a lot of time on my hands in the evening, and I wasn't drinking anymore, so I had to fill that void with meetings, and I couldn't get enough of them. I began to make a lot of new friends. And it bothered me about that step. I knew that if I could turn my problems, my life, and will over to someone else, they told me things would get better, but I had no way of doing it. One of my sponsors has a great hold on the spiritual side of the program. And he worked with me. And he said I was pushing too hard. That I should just try to work it one day at a time. Art wanted to get out and be Mr. AA for a little bit. <laughs> I had been going back to see uh, the doctors from the hospital center and they told me that I was emotionally disturbed, that I should probably take uh, some pills that would lift me from depression. And I believed them. I took the pills, the darling little pills. And although I didn't become addicted, uh, I did abuse the prescriptions that they gave me. I found way to, uh, ways to refill them when they couldn't have been refilled. I liked the feeling that uh, they gave to me, lifting me up, uh, making me forget my problems. But uh, I finally stopped using those. They, the doctors had also recommended that I use antibuse because I didn't really seem to have any, any hold on the program in AA. And so, as I said, I was doing everything anyone told me. Anyone knew anything about alcoholism, I wanted it. So I took the antibuse, and I knew better not to drink on it. I wondered how long I would have to take it. One doctor would say two years, one said five years. They came to me one night last August that I didn't need it anymore, and I just took them and threw them away. And I told the doctor the next day. He didn't say a word. I haven't had a problem since. AA was sufficient at that time. So the, you see, there was some growth. But this, getting back to this, this sponsor that Try to slow me down and make me work it one day at a time. He had something in, in common with me in that his hobby is, uh, is hunting. I always fancied myself a pretty good hunter. I could tell great stories about uh, the things I'd hunted. Usually I'd just go off in snow banks and fall asleep in the snow with a half pint or go back in the woods and lay down in a little culvert. But this guy really did know how to hunt. And Art was going to learn something about it, too. 
We found a place over in the eastern shore this past fall and had uh, more game than I've ever seen in my life. The place hadn't been hunted in 10 or 15 years, and it was kind of an exclusive group that we got the hunting, hunting rights to go in there. And there were wild Canadian geese I had never hunted before. And this was great sport for me because, you see, I was, I was a little bit sober, and I, I really knew, I knew something about the outdoors anyway, knew how to stay warm, but... But it turns out this fellow, uh, this sponsor is a barber and Saturday is his big day. And he couldn't get up there on Saturday so I found myself going pretty much from, uh, alone. And I go up on a Friday night and stay at a little tourist home up there in Chestertown and then I go out and hunt all day. And I was getting plenty of geese and a lot of ducks. I was very, very lonesome and still probably emotionally disturbed and I was concerned about that third step. I was laying there in that tourist home back in, in November then, and I picked up uh, the Gideon Bible and I opened it up, and uh, it was right at the 23rd Psalm. And I remembered this uh, as from, from my childhood. It said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you know that's the third step made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that really sunk into me that night. I don't know why. No great big flash or anything, but it meant something to me. And the next day, drizzling rain, about oh, between 30 and 35 degrees, and I was going out on a, on a little pond, a little inlet off of the bay and hunt. Had a blind down there and had a boat. Put decoys out and sat there all morning and no birds came over. And in the afternoon, something finally did come over and I was getting tired and it was cold, it was getting a little windy. The ice was kind of forming around there. And a good little flock of geese came in there and, and three's the limit and I put three down on the water in something like ten minutes. I got the boat and I went out there to pick them up. I was in waders. Waders tell you, uh, cover you clean up to here, and you can tow up the chest and suspenders on. But I needed the boat because the geese had floated out a little distance beyond a decoy. I went out and I picked up one and the oar broke on the boat. And the tide was moving out and I couldn't get back in. Well, I thought, well, I put the decoys out and I had the waders on. Tides come in a little bit. I ought to be able to get out with the waders on and pick, pick the rest of them up. Forget the other birds that are on the water. Hold on to the boat. So I went overboard. And when I did, I must have gone right into a sinkhole. Knew the waders filled up and nothing flat. And I was under the water. And I never told the sponsor this because he'd get mad at me. He didn't like anybody hunting down there by himself in the first place. But flashed through my mind under that water that day, that if the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, I better get busy. <laughs> and I did. I came out of those waders, and it was cold. But because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I really believe that it saved my life that day. You see, I had enough sobriety then to be able to have the calmness not to react. And I had a faith in a higher power. If 
probably for the first time, first time in my life. And not only came out of the waiters, we got the boat up on the shore, was able to go back out there and uh, just my underwear in the cold water and pick up the man's decoys and bring them back up and get back to town, get dry. And I didn't get anything except a minor cold out of it. A minor cold. But I got something that day through the program and letting it work that I'll cherish all my life. And that's what really AA has, has meant to me in these, these 11 months. I find that in, in working these steps and working these principles, it's a new way of life. Uh, last night we were talking about the 12th step at our meeting out in Laurel. And it got around to me, I, I was thinking what a, what a paradox it is. It says in the 12th step that we have to carry the message to uh, other alcoholics or to share our experiences. In other words, we try to give away what we've got. And in doing so, we're able to keep it. And that, I related back to the first step. You have to admit defeat in order to win. Dog's honest thing I ever did here. And for me to get sober, my wife and family had to go so that I could be on my own. Okay. And the program is just filled with the principles that I speak some of tonight. I don't know too many of them, but I'm willing to learn. And I find that in keeping this willingness, I do grow. Maybe I've got a little bit of humility through that second step. A hell of a lot of honesty in taking that first step. And a lot of pride in being a member of AA. Thank you very much. Thank you, Art. Thank you, Patty. I was put in jail for being drunk the first time in 1946, the second time in about 1960, somewhere. Well, the first time was in Seattle, the second time was in Washington, D.C., and I was locked up somewhere else one time. I don't remember where it was. And I was hospitalized in 1957 as, with, by the Air Force in Turkey with an anxiety reaction whatever that is, uh, what, I, what, ha what happened to me was I went without a drink for four hours and I was going into DT. And I was hospitalized in 1962 in Fort Meade Army Hospital by the Army as a nervous white male, age 32. You know, I don't know what kind of diagnosis that was. <laughs> and in 1965, I was hospitalized in Yakuska Naval Hospital as a chronic alcoholic suffering from acute alcoholism, self-diagnosed. And that's what my record says today. Nobody had the, the guts to tell me that I had a drinking problem until I was willing to say it myself. And when I walked into that hospital and said, I got a drink, drinking problem, they said, you're right. Now, I haven't been in jail since that last time, whenever it was. And I haven't been in a hospital for being drunk or nervous or anxious since I came into Alcoholics Anonymous.